This week's episode is brought to you by Verizon. Introducing Verizon Innovative Learning HQ, an easy-to-use, free online portal that empowers K-12 educators to bring new ways of learning into the classroom. The site offers hundreds of free, standards-based, ready-to-teach lesson plans, immersive educational experiences, and professional development courses to help educators learn new skills, feel more confident with technology integration, and have the opportunity to earn research-backed micro-credentials free. Start your journey at verizon.com slash edsurge. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and an editor here at Ed Surge. We're a nonprofit newsroom covering education at all levels. In 2001, Carl Wyman won a Nobel Prize for physics for discovering a new state of matter that had been predicted by Albert Einstein. Your groundbreaking work on Bose-Einstein condensation. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences gave him and two colleagues the award at a black tie ceremony full of pomp and circumstance. You are hearing a clip from that ceremony right now. On behalf of the Royal Academy of Sciences, I wish to congratulate you on your great accomplishments. I now ask you to step forward to receive your Nobel Prizes from the hands of His Majesty the King. This moment is probably what a lot of scientists dream of. Wyman had won the world's top prize in his discipline. And that level of fame made folks all over the world curious about his work and his ideas. And what this researcher did next was pretty unusual. Rather than continue to work on atomic physics, he phased it out and shifted most of his attention to a different kind of research. A quest to improve teaching, using research to find out what kind of teaching actually works best, especially in physics and other STEM fields. Education research wasn't new to Wyman, who these days is an emeritus professor of physics and education at Stanford University. He had actually been pursuing research to improve physics teaching for years, as a parallel area of work that people had not paid that much attention to. But now that more people were watching, his goal was to raise the profile of research into how to do education. It's Nobel season right now. The latest prizes were just announced recently. So it made me curious to connect with Wyman to find out what he's learned in the past 20 plus years of education research since he won that prestigious Nobel. It turns out it's a journey that has led him to push for radical change in how science is taught. And he admits it has been sometimes frustrating. Here's my conversation with Carl Wyman. You won your Nobel Prize for atomic physics, but you also were working already on education research. How did you get in, interested in the education research? Like, What was it that got you started on that back when you first started? Yeah, so you're, you're right. I mean, by the, when I won the Nobel Prize, I had been running for a number of years parallel research groups, one of them shining lasers on atoms and the other one studying how people learn physics. Uh, and the way I got into that is actually the the education work came out of my work in research in, in physics. And it was really started by sort of a, a puzzle that I saw, which was that I, 
I'd have these graduate students come in to work in my research lab, you know, doing physics, and they'd had many years of great success in physics courses, but they really didn't seem to know how to do physics when they came in to work for me. So these were these were these were star students uh, academically. Like they were getting, you were picking the best. Yeah. Yes, and I was picking the best, and yet they didn't seem to have learned how to do physics from, in spite of starring on all these physics courses. And but as I say, there wasn't anything fundamentally wrong with them because after they worked for me for a couple of years, they turned into. Uh, you know, expert physicists. And so after I saw this happening over and over again, and I saw actually sort of a correlation with the really top students in coursework never turned out to be the better physicists. And I decided there was some fundamental question here, you know, that, about learning and thinking. And so so I just tackled this as a science question, and I started reading the research on how people learn, how people learn physics. And it there, you know, we have a lot more research now, but this was 30, 35 years ago, and there was still a respectable amount at that point uh, to learn. And enough that I could see first, it explained the the puzzle, why this was happening, and it it showed me there were much better ways to teach than what was being used in most of our courses. But it also then got me interested just in this whole idea you could actually do research in teaching and learning. And so that's how I got started doing it. So it was a long time ago, you said like 30 years ago, there was already some foundation, obviously, but but you felt like there was an area here with some gaps, like some need for understanding even more how to how people learn it, it was just clear there were so many you know it was a a new field and there were just so many different aspects that were open for exploration and and collecting data and you know and 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 deriving fundamental principles just like we we have in physics but i came to realize you could do that for thinking about teaching and learning as well i have to ask you must have had some pretty good teaching at some point to uh, you know rise to the top of your field did but did you feel like actually maybe as you you know saw these students come into your lab and they weren't as prepared as you you know hoped they would be and you had to sort of get them up to speed did you s- sense that in your own um undergraduate and you know whatever your formative education in physics that it also could have been better was there something that you sensed was lacking even in your own story there well, you know, I, I always hesitate to use myself as data, uh, but but in fact, I mean, there were some pretty unique aspects in my education, which I is in the back of my mind when I'm looking at what's happening with other students. And in, in my case, um, I... I, in fact, got involved in doing physics research at a very early stage in my first year in college and got heavily involved in it and decided this was a whole lot more interesting and worthwhile than taking courses. Uh, The research was. Yeah. 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 Research. Right. And so I really spent my whole college career devoted to research and doing the minimal coursework I, I could get away with, essentially. And 
I managed to get lots of loopholes to get away with a lot. And so for me, my education was overwhelmingly just actually doing research, you know, interacting with with other research students and graduate students in the lab and and the coursework. You know, I never felt I learned terribly much from any of my classes, but it was kind of very much secondary. And it was also there was also something that I realized even as an undergraduate, which was that because I was doing uh, very involved in research, I was looking at my coursework much more about you know, how can this be useful in thinking about physics and doing physics? And I, at that point, I even recognized that that was very different to my fellow students. And many of them were in some sense quite envious of my, of the attitude I could have about learning because for them, it was just, okay, here's a bunch of new information. We're supposed to be learning to repeat on tests as opposed to some fundamental value you could use it for more generally. Yeah. And I, before we get into some specifics of what you've learned in your research and what the research has shown us about teaching, it seems like there's a big picture paradigm shift, I think you've called it, in in the difference between this kind of lecture model, which as I understand it, your own experience was um, that you, you know, that you were trying to check out of, and the kind of learning that was actually, you know, the, the kind of teaching rather that actually led to the learning that you could apply and become this, you know, kind of a, a, a practicing physicist. How would you describe this this shift that that it, maybe it sounds like it's still out there in, you know, schools and, and colleges that that is the norm versus where you think it should be? Yeah. So so the norm is really this paradigm of you've got a a, a brain and it's a sort of fixed thing and you fill it up with knowledge and the how well it can absorb that knowledge is just determined by the characteristics of that brain and so you know the students are these brains coming in to sit down in front of you yeah yeah that the, and they're just fixed and so Colleges spend lots of time focusing on, okay, how do we select the brains that will absorb the most, you know, with admissions and tests and such. And and then what, you know, what material are we going to try and pour into them? You know, what things do we cover? And so that's that's the old and still largely pervasive paradigm. But I'd say what research shows us is a very different picture, which is that the the brain's very what we call plastic it changes and in fact it's the so really you can you should need to think about it that these student brains come into the classroom ready to be tra- transformed by their educational experience and the 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 more their or the better their educational experience the more their brains are changed and What's really happening is you're rewiring how the neurons are hooked up, and that's developing new capabilities in those brains. And so it's not it's not a it's very much not an idea of a fixed brain with its capacity. It's how much new capability you can develop in a brain through proper education. And the the best form of that education that that essentially 
you know, does the best transformation of the brain is really having the brain practice the thinking you want it to learn. And so it really needs to be rather than sitting, listening to somebody drone away, giving information where the brain is doing very little, essentially just taking in sounds to being actively thinking about ideas, solving problems, figuring things out with, you know, feedback and guidance as it's practicing that, but that it's, it's strengthening essentially through mental, the right kind of mental exercise. And so that's really the, the different paradigm is how do you exercise the brain in the right way to best develop new capabilities in it? I have to ask you this. I know you've talked about it before. I, I can't not ask you about the comparison you've made between the lecture and bloodletting, which was at some point state of the art in medicine. I'm glad we're not living in that time. And now is is seen as, wow, get you fired, obviously. So what, but, but people are so wedded to the lecture in so many places that that feels, I'm sure that feels very threatening if you hear that, be that comparison to bloodletting. But I, I, I feel like you, you do mean this, right? Bloodletting is the comparison you make. That, that's right. Yes. This was my sound bite, but it was effective way that, you know, lecture is the pedagogical equivalent to bloodletting. And, you know, there, there really is, this isn't just flippant. I mean, if you look at it, that was for guys, 2000 years, people felt bloodletting was the treatment of choice and you could justify it because well you let blood from people and look they got better you know they were they and so obviously it was working and and so much the same thing is happening in in with lectures you have st students you give lectures to a bunch of students and some of those actually turn out to you know be pretty good and so obviously that means the lecture was effective and the students who weren't successful they're just their brains weren't very good and so that's how you could continue to justify lectures as, as effective in very similar ways to you know you justified bloodletting was good you know some yeah it didn't work for all the people but that was just the fault of those people who had poor systems, you know, and so there really is a very, sim you know, it's a logic, very similar logic to justify them. Because I understand, just to put a concrete thing on it, you, when you started out in your journey of researching education techniques, you tested how much your own lectures were delivering value to your students. And how did that go? Yeah, so this is actually something that many, many, many physics education researchers I know of have have done, which is they were wondering, gee, is this really true? And they test, you know, what students take away from their own lectures. And, you know, I found that, I mean, one little study I did was I sort of made, you know, some important but non-obvious fact in lecture and then tested them on it half an hour later and 10% of them actually, you know, remembered it. So 90% did not get it. 90% didn't get this. And then, and then actually the, later on, I, I repeated this, but I 
presented this material in what we call an active learning environment, where rather than just telling students that they had to answer a question, figure out a question about how something behaved and then get feedback on that. And then I tested them on that. And overwhelmingly, they all had remembered it. So, you know, that was just a very simple but clear demonstration of my own what I thought was pretty good lecturing was not very effective. Okay, I'm going to take a, a, a quick detour because I think it'll help and we'll come back to some of the work you've done, you know, spreading the word about some of the findings that, that you and others have had. I'm curious, I really want to understand, at least in layman's terms, because I'm not a physicist, what you won the Domel for, the, the kind of channel of research, your other line of research that, that you were working on, as you said, like shining lasers at atoms. Um, so what, in a nutshell, was the insight that won you the Nobel? Well, I'm not sure you'd say it's an insight. It was an experimental accomplishment. Uh, and we figured out how to do this experiment. But what it was, was uh, there's something called Bose-Einstein condensation. And this was predicted back by Einstein back in 1924 that just looking at equations, said that if you got atoms cold enough, they would turn into a completely new form of matter. And so uh, with, and then after Einstein, people came to realize this matter would have very strange and interesting properties that would sort of reveal the microscopic quantum world of that we normally is completely hidden from us that would make it on a show up on a very large much larger scale so so people have been trying to make this for almost since einstein predicted it but it it required getting to ridiculously low temperatures and so einstein never took it seriously and nobody else did for quite a while but then people worked on this over the years and what we figured out was basically how to get atoms much, much colder than anyone had gotten them before, down to less than a millionth of a degree above absolute zero, which is the coldest temp possible temperature. And at that point, they formed this new state of matter, uh, and it had fascinating properties that got people excited about studying it. So that was basically what the Nobel Prize was for. And the real challenge was the figuring out the techniques to to get this sample of atoms cold enough and hold it without messing it up. What was the secret sauce in a nutshell? Uh, it had a, a couple of different components, but one of the most important things was that People have been that this really required a product of coldness and denseness. The atoms had to be really cold, but also close together. And we the 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 closer together they were, the less cold they had to be. And but what people have been trying to do this, they kept failing and failing. And and I, what I kind of realized was their they were worrying about the wrong problem that they were they were just trying to use essentially traditional ways of getting things quite cold but getting them squeezed together enough and but whenever they tried to do that 
the atoms would just turn into little freeze together into little snowflakes essentially and disappear like atoms that are cold want to do and so we i had the idea that we wanted to really make them much colder and keep them a long ways apart and that that would be a better approach and so that led to using these new techniques that we and others were developing of using laser light to cool atoms down to make them much colder and then develop some other new techniques for holding them and cooling them even farther so cool them and then get them together well we keep 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 them together the whole time but just not very close together and but in but as we keep them not too close together but just get them very very cold and then they would still undergo this transition what was it like when you succeeded in that problem after it sounds like years of attempts probably well it was about 10 years of actual work towards it i'd say but uh really five of very serious effort toward making making this uh you know it it was it was exciting and it was kind of unique actually because most physics experiments you spend a long time building it you turn it on it doesn't work and you spend you know a year figuring out all the ways that it's not working and then you'll get some little tiny signal and you'll turn all the knobs to make it a little bigger and a little bigger and over some months or something you can get something big enough to show other people and convince them and the the Bose-Einstein condensation was quite different in that we had been working on it for a number of years and trying different versions of the experiment, but we then built a new, the newest version and turned it on and the signal just showed up spectacularly clearly right away. It was a very dramatic. And so that was quite unusual, but also then quite exciting, obviously. Uh, and so then we spent several days worrying about the fact that it was too good to be true because in when everything's too good to be true it usually means you've overlooked something and so trying to think of all the different tests we could make to be sure it really was the Bose-Einstein condensation and not some artifact that was looking like it and finally convinced ourselves and then pretty easy time convincing the rest of the world and then so winning the Nobel Prize maybe was secondary to that or, you know, it to be honest, it really was. I was I was more thrilled about actually accomplishing it, seeing it show up so so well uh, that uh, that was more exciting, I think, than the Nobel Prize. After the break, what has this Nobel laureate learned from his education research, and what is he focusing on next? Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Verizon. To inspire tomorrow's brightest minds, educators need today's best tools. Introducing Verizon Innovative Learning HQ, an easy-to-use, free online portal that empowers K-12 educators to bring new ways of learning into the classroom. The site offers hundreds of free, standards-based, ready-to-teach lesson plans, immersive educational experiences, and professional development courses to help educators learn new skills, feel more confident with technology integration, 
and have the opportunity to earn research-backed micro-credentials free. New curricula is available from partners including Discovery Education, McGraw-Hill, and NYU. Also, don't miss their professional development virtual conference with Digital Promise, Elevating Innovation, on November 7th, helping educators to explore ways to integrate tech in the classroom. Visit the webinar page for more info. It's all part of Verizon's commitment to help close the digital divide. Start your journey at verizon.com slash edsurge. Now back to the episode. Yeah, because I mean, I think some people would wonder why since winning the Nobel, which is now, you know, over uh, 20 years ago that you did, you have spent, it sounds like you've kind of moved away from shining light on atoms and, and, um, gone, you know, instead of building more on that work that won you the Nobel and that took you to this, the top of the field, you are, you've turned to all education research largely, or like to focus on education research. Some would say like, that's kind of wasting that, so to speak, or like, why, tell us why you thought education was the thing. And yeah, well, so, you know, I had, like I say, I had parallel research groups and I always felt I was neglecting both of them somewhat trying to divide my time. That was you know, for a number of years before I got the Nobel Prize and then for n- several years afterwards. But then I just reached the point where I essentially just felt that I could make more important contributions in education than I could in continuing the kind of physics research I was doing that, you know, lots of other people were in the field doing good stuff. And I was you know, I, I was never gonna, going to have an, an impact like I'd had before. And, and that were, I thought there were opportunities where, frankly, because I had the Nobel Prize, I mean, people would give me over more credibility and that, but there were places where I just could make a bigger difference in education. And so that's, that's where I made the transition. Okay, now I have to ask you, so now that you've been trying, like, what is the biggest mechanism you've used, and you're clearly a persistent researcher, in trying to change the teaching of physics um, from this old paradigm to the new? What is your, in a nutshell, what what has your tactic and research been? You mentioned active learning, but like, how have you tried to spread the word about some of the findings that you've, that you've, that you've um, had? You know, there's a combination of uh, the di- different different things. I mean, one is just just continuing to do more l- experiments on different aspects of the learning and different like, trying different things and doing it how to do it better. Uh, you know, and there's always room for improvements in that. Uh, but there's then the whole different issue of how do you change other you know the attitude and institutional change and i did the you know nowadays i mostly just proselytize about this go around and give talks at lots of places and so on but but i uh was some years ago now but 15 or so but where i did actually do a large experiment just on changing teaching and that was this thing called the science education initiative which was done at 
University of British Columbia and a smaller version at University of Colorado, where it was really a, a large program uh, to voted to trying to see if you could change the teaching practices of really entire science departments. And so yeah, I, I don't want to get into all the details now, but it had grants and competition for departments and and instituted different training programs and support and incentives for faculty and to switch essentially to switch from lecture to active learning of various kinds. Exactly. Yeah. And and essentially we demonstrated it could be done. And and you know, there were found a lot of factors that were important and it wasn't equally successful in all departments, but the most successful departments we got 90% of the faculty changed, which I think compared to other any other programs I know about was spectacular. And so I I thought it was really important to show that it could be done. Now it hasn't been it, it's been copied in smaller versions at a number of places, not as widely as I'd hoped, but you know, universities are pretty static places with very building cultures. It's just hard to change them too much, but there is progress in that direction. So I will say, you know, you've just said yourself, it's not as much as you would have hoped. Are you a little frustrated perhaps after all these years that more hasn't changed as far as adopting these research backed approaches? Oh, uh, sure. I'm always frustrated because I'm an in impatient sort of person. <laughs> uh, but, you know, at the same time, I have to admit that, I mean, like I say, first, you're dealing with you're dealing with something that's very entrenched, you know, culturally and historically. <laughs> and, you know, that's just hard to make big changes and things like that. And there really have been quite a bit of, of change. I mean, there's there's things like the, you know, you see aspects like the uh, American Association of Universities launched a big program and it's STEM education initiative six or seven years ago that is devoted to changing the teaching of, of introductory science courses and calling on its, you know, it's, it represents sort of the 60 or so leading research universities in North America, and it's calling upon its members to change how they teach. And, you know, that sort of thing is, would have been unheard of uh, very long ago. And, and you know, you, there's lots of, of other things like that we see happening. So I'm sort of mixed between, between frustrated and, and, you know, but realistically thinking, okay, this is probably as good as you could hope for, and we really are making progress. Now, I would love to hear just a, a quick example of what one of these active learning lessons would look like compared to the, you know, I think we we probably all like know kind of a lecture and what that feels like, whether we've taken a physics class recently or not. But what would be a way to, you know, teach a concept more actively that, you know, that you may maybe have tried or your research has shown that is the equivalent of like finding a way to super cool the <laughs> the atoms in a way like to, to 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 treat the students differently so that a result is different yeah so the the key idea is that you have to have them 
that there's sort of two principles that you want to guide it. You want the students to be actively thinking and so that they're in some sense figuring it out, figuring things out by themselves, by giving them the right kind of practice problems and questions to solve. And you want them to be getting getting sort of timely and specific feedback on their thinking to help improve it while they're doing that okay and so the way that might work in a in a course is that the students we often have them do a little bit of advanced preparation of sort of maybe do some reading of the textbook where it's it's not really understanding the science but it's it's learning some basic facts and terminology that they're going to need to use without spending class time on that. And then in the class, they'll be given some question that they have to figure out. And uh, often we sometimes we use these electronic clickers in a great big class where the the students would have to answer individually. But what is the challenge? Like, what's an example of a challenge? Just to put a, you know, help us all engage as we listen to it here, you know? Uh, well, the, you know, it's it's a little harder to to just explain a physics Out of context. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, one, one example I often use, though, is we give them a little circuit with light bulbs and batteries and then ask them, okay, have you add a wire to this place in the circuit, what's going to happen to the light bulb in, in this case? And so that they have to <coughs> they have to think about how electricity is working and how it's going to how it this change is going to apply in this particular circuit. And and so they have to think about that. And then they have to discuss it with the students around them as to what the answer is and why. And so they they talk to their fellow students, and then they get, well, and they might vote again. And again, the instructor can see how the students are all voting and can also listen in on these discussions. So getting a much better picture of what the students are thinking, you know, right and wrong. And then, excuse me, uh, and then, the instructor leads a follow-up discussion, giving them feedback on their thinking. And so, and in other cases, they might have what we call worksheets where they have questions they're having to write out the answers to that, again, are sort of working through the, the physics problem and asking them the basic questions on it, where they have to apply the ideas and sort of make sense of them. And so you're, in some ways, you're turning over a bunch of the learning to the students, but that's really what the, what is necessary. I mean, you're you're now having them, them use their brains to process these ideas with, like I say, and the the but they get support, much more informed support by the instructor who's listening to what they're doing, seeing what they're doing, and thereby can be a much more targeted. And so. When students are taught this way, they're they're much more deeply engaged. They ask many more questions, and this and the instructors actually much prefer teaching this way once they learn to do it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's so it changes the role of the instructor. Yeah, the instructors really. Sometimes people talk about this as student centered instruction. I don't like that because 
the instructor still has a very central role in this. They have to think about what's the what's the right kind of practice questions and problems to give to the students. They have to monitor carefully how the students are thinking, and then they have to be be give them very good feedback and guidance on how to improve. And so the 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 instructor is still playing a very central role, but the students are also taking a much more active role in the learning process than they were otherwise. It's, you said that the instructors end up liking it. Yeah, and, and that was one thing that we found from this this big project and changing the in, institution, the Science Education Initiative, is that that was probably the main selling point is once instructors saw others doing it and how much more enjoyable it was to teach. And it's, you know, it's because it's the difference between coming into a half empty classroom and the students who are there are sleeping or checking their phones most of the time versus, you know, a full classroom of <clears throat> students very engaged and thinking about the material, asking deep questions about it routinely, you know, that's, that's obviously just much more fun as an instructor to teach that way. I guess I'm curious, I have to ask, the pandemic and the emergency remote teaching period that that we all went through, you know, for schools and colleges, um, it seems like things are sort of getting, you know, kind of the health crisis, the, the worst of it hopefully is behind us. What do you think is the takeaway in in this in your quest to sort of change teaching, um, do, what is the the result? Do you think, or what is the what is the pandemic kind of result been like for you? Uh, well, there's actually a couple of couple of great different aspects, a plus and a minus. The the minus is we we've seen that the students are coming out of high school with a significant drop in preparation that we. At the university level, I think we just have to adjust to uh, and just recognize is is there and and adjust our teaching to uh, mm. and but the other side of this and this is you know I wish we had a lot better more data real data on this but this is kind of my anecdotes I get from talking with a lot of people that the the pandemic teaching online has really opened up a lot of uh, instructors to think of different, more innovative and therefore more effective ways to teach. And it just mm. because, you know, lecturing doesn't work very well, but it really the, the deficiencies really get magnified when you're just online. And and so it, it opened up a lot of people to start rethinking their teaching, at least in my experience, what I'm running into is a lot. So there has been, that's a, that's the upside of it. I would say is that it has nudged a lot of people towards thinking about better ways they might teach and more, more active ways they can involve students. And it sounds like your advice, it sounds like from what I'm, you know, I know you've written a whole book on, on some of this that we can, we can link to. Um, it seems like, it's not just listening to to this podcast or or even reading your book that's going to change things. Teachers need to try it. It sounds like you're it, it's what you're hoping people do. Teachers need to try it, but they also they need to know how to do it. I mean, that's that's another really very fundamental 
point we haven't touched on, but I think is 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 really a you know a, a, again sort of another aspect of a paradigm shift, which is that the traditional paradigm is kind of if you know the subject, then you can teach it. Whereas what I would say the the correct paradigm is that there's real there's real expertise in teaching. There's principles and practices that it, you know just like in science there's principles and practices if you know and apply these you're going to get better student outcomes and if you don't <laughs> and and these involve a lot of different a lot of different things to to know how to do right basically and so this this is kind of you know expertise in teaching and and that people need to learn that and there needs to be ways for them to learn that and it's you know i'd say we, one of our experiments was it, it's not incredibly difficult but it does take roughly 50 hours of sort of training to to develop reasonably reasonable level of let's say teaching expertise and that so that you know that has to be part of the equation of <laughs> fixing the system is is getting that into practice whether it's something graduate students take or faculty training programs or something but it that really does need to be recognized which it isn't now that there really is true expertise in teaching that you have to learn to be highly effective so what's next what are you you've you know, you've mentioned like the sort of big, large scale study you did, you've done, you're doing research, but is there, what's the, what's the next frontier for you in this work? Well, that actually what I've been, the, the research that my group has done, been doing the last few years and I'm most excited about is, is has to do with problem solving. And so this is kind of a, a, a limited, but very important aspect of teaching and learning, I would say, because you know what i would argue is that in science and engineering and arguably almost every discipline what you really what you really want people to learn to do in learning the subject is to do is to be able to solve problems in the you know in the relevant context and to use the the knowledge and reasoning approaches of an expert in the, in the subject to in that problem solving process. And so my group has done a lot of research where we looked very deeply at how a whole bunch of scientists and engineers solved authentic problems as opposed to textbook problems, authentic problems in their discipline. And we found it that, and we, I think, made some real advances in understanding the problem solving process and that we saw that it was really framed about making a set of decisions and we came up with these 29 decisions that were made by all these different experts across all these different fields the same set of decisions uh in in their problem solving but to make these decisions they called on specialized knowledge so it wasn't let you could be you know just because you'd recognize how to make a decision you could be an expert across all these fields you needed also the the knowledge to hit to guide you in making those decisions so 
from my perspective, what I think this allows is a much more effective way to teach problem solving, which is, like I say, it's a very, very fundamental goal of education, but it really hasn't been tackled very much at all in the research. And I think now we sort of know, okay, you can teach problem solving much better by having it broken down into these little bite-sized pieces of practicing these specific decisions and <coughs> putting that into into action. And I think it's, it applies from very beginning students in a subject really all the way up to, you know, advanced graduate level training can be this this new insights and approaches can be effective. So that's what I'm excited about nowadays is advancing that area. Is that beyond physics? Is it also other disciplines that that s- applies? Yeah, this, this, because we, we studied this across many different areas of science and engineering and found it very consistent. And so we've actually now been applying these ideas in, in not just in physics, but in uh, chemistry teaching and in and some engineer some engineering uh, fields and so on. And it seems to all apply quite well. Now you've won basically some of the top prizes in teaching research. Um, but do you think there should be a Nobel Prize for education research? There sort of is this, I mean, there's this Edon prize in that I won in education yeah. research. And I mean it comes with almost $4 million. So it's about, that's way more than the Nobel Prize, actually. So you did it. You got, you basically have, have reached in your new discipline, so to speak, or your, your other, the other side of your research, you, you reached this peak as well. Right. Uh, You know, and of course it doesn't have nearly the, the prestige and, and, you know, it's not nearly as well known, uh, but the, Edon Foundation is working hard to try and change that, but you know it takes a while to get the attention to these things. So that's more money than the Nobel. Uh, quite a bit, yes. <laughs> the Nobel is about one million. So, and do you take this money? All this, so um, you know, what? How does what is the the money? Obviously, you've used the the prestige of the Nobel to you know get a public attention. Uh, what does the money from these prizes? mean for your work well actually the money has been very valuable uh for a couple things for for the nobel most of the money went to starting the fet project which is a project of interactive online simulations or free and used for teaching science and yeah, we haven't that, even mentioned that but you built out this whole tool I yeah believe, so i got this for, started and it's really been Gravely, I turned it over to Kathy Perkins, who's built it up way beyond my my level. But it's you know it's now used over a million times a day all over the world for kids and teachers using it. So it's it's made quite an impact. And and so the the Nobel Prize money was sort of seed money to get that started. So that was good. Uh, and then the the Edun money which was about 4 million, half of that was, is to support sort of a project and half of it is just your own personal use. And so 
the there the house for the project went again to support the FET uh, project and to expand its its it's sort of a bigger outreach program to teachers and support uh, teachers in uh, particularly in Africa sort of to know about and how to use these simulations effectively in their teaching. And it's particularly valuable there because, you know, they have very limited resources and so things that are, but they do have internet. And so, you know, something you can provide resources you can provide to the students free through the internet can make a big impact there. So, so that was, that's how a bunch of the money has, has gone there. And then the, then the, personal money we actually my wife and I actually used for education as well which we part of it was to support a, a journal that is provides uh right a, a mechanism for publishing edu teaching uh examples essentially course source it's called and and so it it supports that journal of and trying to get it to expand so it covers physics topics as well and then and then we put a bunch of money into trying to solve what i see as a really fundamental issue in improving education and that's the the methods for evaluating teaching uh, particularly at the university level where i think everybody realizes that we we don't have good ways of doing that. Is your rate, my professor, anonymous score not good? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's rate, you're my professor, but you know the the things that universities, almost every university uses, really isn't much better at all. It's it's student evaluations, and those have tremendous flaws to them. They're very biased, and they don't capture effective teaching practices at all. And Everybody knows that they're they're highly flawed and they're probably going to be illegal because, like I say, they, there's such good evidence that they have very biased against, for example, if you're a, a underrepresented minority or a, or a female instructor in a white dominated field, you just get lower evaluations, even if you do this exactly the same thing as a as a white male does and so anyway so it's a real problem and i are someone is someone legally challenging them currently do you know uh so i i don't know in the u.s i know that in canada they've actually been challenged and overturned and and ruled against them and i i think that in the u.s there are there are some lawsuits that are plodding through states somewhere because i mean the the data is really overwhelming so that they can't possibly continue but but for me you know i think doing this not just the legalities of it but doing better something that really captures real measures of teaching quality and measures of using good teaching practices and ties the incentives to that is really what you need to make large-scale change eventually because i'm convinced that faculty Although people always say you can't tell them what to do, I'm convinced they really do are doing what they get rewarded for. And right now, the teaching evaluations are so meaningless, they really are counted 
uh, appropriately counted very little in the incentive and reward promotion system. And I think so what you need is something that's a good, meaningful evaluation that then could be taken seriously and how you hire and promote people. And then it'll make a big difference. So anyway, what we, we set up was we donated money to then uh, AAU is has uh, run a, a competition that then provided grants to I think five or six departments to do demo to come up with demonstration program projects of better evaluation systems. So we'll we'll see how that hope work works out, but that's how we ended up spending a bunch of the money. Wow. So that's the personal money you could have built your mansion with. Right. <laughs> Instead of buying a Lamborghini, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I'm now curious, like you got me wondering like what kind of car you drive, but it's more like uh, it's more like how do you your own motivations like you're so passionate about this, this, this topic, it does, you know, like come back to like, why do you, at this point? Or is that such a drive? Well, you know, I, I guess fundamentally, you know, people people ask me, oh, are you so passionate about teaching? And I'm, I'm not really passionate about teaching. I have to confess that what I am passionate about, though, is people learning. And I think, you know, learning and learning to think in sort of a rigorous scientific way is really an, an enormously important human accomplishment. And it's enormously important in kind of humans making better decisions about their own lives and about the future of our society. And so for me, that's why it's, that's why it matters so much. Oh, that's great. And 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 the kind of car you drive? <laughs> <laughs> it's a plug-in. We're very happy we got a plug-in round four. So now we hardly ever use gasoline. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm driving my Kia, but I ne next car I hope will be electric for me too. Well, thank you so much for all this time. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Okay, well, thank you. It's been fun talking. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we bring you conversations just like this one. If you like the show, please follow the Ed Surge Podcast on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please tell a friend or colleague about the show so we can continue to grow. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me online at jeffyoung.net or reach out by email at jeff at edsurge.com. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig and the music is by Komaku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. <laughs>